0: Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working
2: adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtog, but enough about me. Today I'm speaking to one of the most innovative and influential groups of the 1980s. Named for a quote from pioneering psychologist Arthur Yanov, their stunning breakthrough, The Hurting, helped bring the topic of mental health into popular music and radio hits like Mad World, Shout, sowing the seeds of love and of course the immortal mtv classic everybody wants to rule the world helped inspire the sound of a host of contemporary artists ranging from the Weeknd, lord and the 1975 to hip-hop titans like drake and kanye west the duo parted company at the dawn of the 90s only to join forces once again for the well-received 2003 album everybody loves a happy ending As the title suggests, this was intended to be a short-lived reunion, mostly to tie up loose ends musically and give fans a sense of closure. But now, almost two decades later, they're back with the tipping point. The record had something of a difficult birth, taking shape over the course of nearly ten years. Early sessions with a crew of outside songwriters left the band so uninspired that they nearly parted company once again. But then the pair got back to basics, holding up in a room with acoustic guitars just like they did when they first teamed up as teens. The resulting record is a stunning display of musical virtuosity and radical vulnerability, inspired in large part by the death of Roland Orzabal's wife. Occasionally dark and moody, but never maudlin, it's a hopeful meditation on mental health, mortality, and moving on. I'm so happy to welcome Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith, who together are Tears for Fears. in the statement for the album's release, you had words to the effect of, before everything went so right, first everything had to go wrong. And I feel like that's how the best art's made, a little bit of adversity. Uh, you were originally working on a very different album made with a, a host of outside writers, basically a collection of potential singles rather than an album that that spoke for you and and your shared experience. And I think I'd read that you jokingly called it uh, Tears for Fears the Musical, which <laughs> sums it up pretty well. Uh, how did you go from there to the Tipping point, which is just so deeply personal and meaningful and honest, and just has such a, a surplus of soul. Was there a point when you know you would realize you had to go in this different direction?
3: Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we were as, as you said, we we've it felt like a collection of attempts at a single. So so the premise was, you know, that we we should go and write with you know modern songwriters, hit writers, producers um and try and drag us kicking and screaming into the 21st century um but the problem with that is you don't have a shared history um they don't have that the lyrical content um and the subject is really kind of secondary to them most of the time they're looking for sort of melody lines and production more than anything else and we didn't feel it was particularly honest and by the end of it we we felt we were left it with you know basically we had this finished album with 12 tracks that were 12 attempts at a modern hit single and it didn't have any storyline or arc or ebb and flow and really didn't tell our story um lyrically it didn't have the depth and so we kind of went back to the drawing board and um went full circle and decided to sit down in my house in los angeles and write with two acoustic guitars and see what came from that. And um, this one song, the opening track of the album, No Small Thing, came. And we're in, in, in the sort of interim period between deciding we wanted to finish this and writing that song, we'd gone back over the old material to decide if anything there was worth keeping. And we decided we really liked five songs. The recordings were secondary. We just knew those five songs fit in with the storyline. And um, so we we set about finishing the other half of the album, and no small thing was the first thing to come, and then it became kind of easy. Um, you know, it was it was us realizing that we really are an album band and not a single band. We've never gone in search of a hit single; never have done in our careers. We've, you know, the singles we've released have only ever been singles taken from an album we have finished. So um, we went. You know, we we went at it with the viewpoint of finishing something we considered to be a good album. I mean, you, you
2: mentioned no small thing. It's such an incredible way to open the record. It opens with a sound that I don't traditionally associate with you, that kind of southwestern acoustic guitar, almost like a Marty Robbins song. I got kind of like El Paso vibes or something like that. It, it's it really sounds like that was such a, a great breakthrough for you. When you reconnected as songwriters again, what what was that experience like for you, slipping back into those those roles together, kind of nose-to-nose with guitars? What was that experience like for you? Was it easy to get back to that place?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it was easy, I think. You know, it was, the comfort level was fine. And um, sitting down with two acoustics, we hadn't done that since the hurting. And uh, so it was us literally going back to our roots. Um, and I think, you know, Roland especially felt something was going to come from that. And, uh, and it did, you know, um, and Roland went away and started working on that song. He, it was during, just after that, the writing session lockdown happened. So Roland went back to England, um, and, and then he couldn't get back to America. So then we started just sending things back and forth to each other via email and, um, Roland basically finished a lot of the song when he was back in England, the, the sort of writing aspect of, of what we had started. And he eventually got back to America when they let him back in the country uh, at the end of August. And we went back into the studio in September and um, we were done by Christmas. So when, wow. you, know what when you know what you're doing... Process becomes easier. And I think left to our own devices and when we're both on the same page and we both know what we want and that happens to be the same thing, um, it becomes an easy process. It's when we're fighting and looking for something that the process is harder when we don't quite know where we're going.
2: I can't think of a better opener to me, especially with the line, I've just got one more song to sing, one more story to tell. It's hard not to take that as autobiographical, knowing knowing your your background and, and your history.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think so.
2: Taking it uh, way back to your your previous album, uh, 2004's Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, did you have any notion that you were going to carry on making records together? Or was that like the title kind of meant to be, a nice way to to wrap things up. When did you? When I guess did this process of uh, of wanting to make a new record uh, start for you?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, as you said, with happy ending, um, it was a, it it seemed like a good way to finish. Um, literally, a happy ending of Kurt and I getting back together after a nine year hiatus. Um, and it was a fun record to make. It was, I relocated my family um, to Los Angeles. All of a sudden, we were waking up to a blue sky, doing a <laughs> school run this, in this beautiful weather, dropped the kids off down onto the tennis court, back into the shower, then down to the, the recording studio to, to do work on this album. It was fun. We had a lot of fun working with Charlton Petters, um, who is a great communicator between the two of us, a great modulator? Um, yeah, we were very happy with the record. Um, it was very different to anything I'd done in the previous decade. But yeah, I mean, we didn't. Uh, we we went out to promote it. We had um, quite a bit of coverage, good radio play in Britain. We did um, some popular TV shows in uh, the states, but we looked at the record sales the next day and we found that people were thinking, you know, people were like, oh, well, here's Tears for Fears. We love Tears for Fears. Let's go to the record store. So they would go to the record store and then they buy a copy of the Greatest Hits record. So you're you're not you're not really shifting new product. Um, following that, no, there was no plan to make another record. I sort of uh, came back to England. The project cycle had finished. And over the years, over about... Um, yeah, it must have been about but more than a decade. We just got better and better and better. And we started to get this great reputation
2: playing live. And I mean, what is your process like for, for writing these songs? Is it more of a case of almost like no small thing where you're starting with acoustic instruments and working out chord sequences and melodic parts? Or do you actually start with um, getting a bunch of, synth lines together and kind of working on uh, almost like a a sonic bed and use that as the bedrock for the track and build it up brick by brick how or is it a combination of both
4: it's a combination of both and of course spent, uh around seven years on this album we we tried pretty much every <laughs> method of songwriting available uh, we worked on about um in excess of 30 songs wow. so right at the end Um, We could cherry pick, but it was, you know, we say cometh the hour, cometh the songs, because it was only in 2019, 2020 that we, we stumbled across the heart and soul and guts of the record. Everything that came before it was just leading up to that moment. And listening back to the the, the songs we chose when we sequenced them, it was just an incredible experience.
2: I mean, something I love about your records is that they, they, they do stand together as a whole and tell a story, which I feel like is a lost art. I mean, that's a degree of care and a skill that I think that we, we've lost in recent years. Uh, in, in, in your words, what is the story of The Tipping Point? Is there a, a way to that, you know, that, that, that you sum it up amongst yourselves? Well,
3: I mean, there's so much had gone on in the world um, and then, you know, our personal lives over the previous bunch of years, you know, obviously, I specifically cite Roland's wife passing away during that time. Obviously, that was a big bit, had a big effect on us, <clears throat> Roland in particular. And um, so obviously, there are songs there about that. Um, but but also on top of that, you know, we've gone through political upheaval worldwide, the rise of the right wing worldwide. Four years of Donald Trump in America, the Me Too movement, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the climate climate crisis, the start of the pandemic, so there, there was a lot of subject matter, um, and there, there certainly we weren't you know stuck for things to write about, and I think all of that is is included in parts on the album, some more obvious than others, but um, but I feel the overall sense of the album is one of of. Of, of hope, you know, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we didn't want it. Our intention was not to make this sort of maudlin record that was kind of depressing. Um, you know, I think that especially tracks like Rivers of Mercy on the album, um, which really does sort of talk about redemption more than anything else, you know. Um, and I think that, that redemption and hope probably are, are two themes going through the album that, that you know, are, are answers to all those other things that we talk about. Um, you know, I, I without getting into too much depth on every track, uh, I, I definitely feel positive by the time I've finished it.
2: Oh, I, I second that 100%. I mean, Rivers of Mercy is an amazing track as I feel like it does such an amazing job of juxtaposing the the upheaval in the streets at the same time when we were kind of in an enforced... Uh, imprisonment, for lack of a better word, in our homes due to the pandemic. And I feel like that that strange kind of push-pull that's going on internally and globally, really, uh, you you feel that in that track. And especially coming right after the track, My Demons, which is, I I love the interplay between those two songs. I mean, My Demons is just such a, a monster of a song, sonically and lyrically. I mean, my demons don't get out much. What a, what a line! And then following it with the comparative gentle sonic scope of uh, of Rivers of Mercy, I I love the interplay between those two songs in particular. For me, that was really such a key moment in the album. That that bend. Yeah, I think that's um, imprisonment is a good word.
4: Yeah, that's I think that's <laughs> kind of what was happening. Uh, yeah, it was it was very strange. Um, that's for Rivers of Mercy. We ended up writing songs of our band instead of writing songs with all these um, strangers, and uh, our keyboard player Doug Petty who's been with us for, for you know for a long, long time, and Charton and has presented us with this backing track, which was so calm, beautiful, and serene, um, and had a sense of longing within it, uh, and was. It was so beautiful to put um, a lyric a melody to. Yes, this was the time of lockdown number one in Britain. And it coincided with the most incredible Mediterranean weather here. So here I am in the West Country, plenty big enough, plenty enough space, you know, three acres, tennis court, recording studio, all kinds of things not much of a prison, or rather an elegant prison, shall we say. And feeling this, well, you know, this forced imprisonment, as you say, that felt like freedom at the same time, until you went out to the supermarket and there were security guards. Uh, But um, And it was, it was a very calm and peaceful time, but when you, if you put on your computer, you turned on the news, you're looking at all this rage, the contrast between the peace you can feel inside and the information you're gleaning, literally from thousands and thousands of miles away, that is the, the, the zeitgeist it's not uh, reflecting your inner state, so that's what that song's about. And you're right, we come out of my demons; they don't get out that much, especially especially lockdown. Um, <laughs> but it's just this: we start with the sounds of the of the riots um, and the sirens, and then we we sink into this incredible feeling. It's almost like you are letting yourself go and you're letting yourself fall back into the the ocean, into the supportive waters, into the waters of redemption. And it's almost suggesting that really the only way out of rage, violence, some of it, of course, is is understandable and justified, but the way forward is to find a place, and this might sound a bit hippy-dippy, a find a place of forgiveness. Because that's literally the only way you are going to cleanse yourself. I
2: think that's well said. I mean, there's... there's it, it's been commented on throughout your work, throughout your history, but on this particular album in particular, the, the appearance of, of, of ghosts and specters that you know we, we, we sort of try to keep at bay. I mean, it's there on the tipping point and in a sense on My Demons as well. Is making music a kind of exorcism for you? I think it's
4: a way of um, acknowledging those ghosts. Mm. Um, Acknowledging how important people who are no longer here are. For instance, the title track, it's a love song, but it's a love song for someone you've lost. And that love, it never goes. It's locked in with your memory of them. And that in itself is a beautiful thing, but yeah, ghosts—it's a symbol we use. We have used all a lot in the past.
2: I mean, thank you for for sharing that with me right now, and on on the songs. I mean, there are so many moments on this album. I mean, the title track and please be happy among them that, that do come from, from this, this very personal tragedy and, and, and trauma and darkness. And, and for that, I mean, as a person, I, I apologize and I'm sending you my, my best wishes. Was there a concern about putting these moments on the album, knowing that you would have to revisit them on stage and, you know, doing press for this? Or would it had almost seemed almost disingenuous as artists to think, well, it's silly. This is what I'm dealing with right now. To pretend it's not happening and write about something else is not... Who I am. How did you kind of strike that balance? Was it, was it a concern for you to put these out there?
3: I, I mean, I, I don't think it's ever a concern. You know, our concern initially really was that it didn't have the depth. Mm. that It didn't have the meaning and it didn't have talk about subjects that were dear to us. You know, I, I think that um, the best use of music for us normally is to put these feelings into some sense of order. You know, and, you know, I've said before that, you know, a lot of the time when you're in these moments of crisis or trying to work out what is going on in the world or things externally, um, your mind tends to go on this eternal kind of um, loop of doom, you know, and the way we tend to work it out is to put it into song and somehow compartmentalize it and make sense of it. And, um, you know, a lot of the songs, I would say most of the songs in this album are, are an attempt by us to make some sense out of things that are going on. So in that sense, it's quite cathartic and and, and therapeutic for us. Um, and consequently, you end up with an album that has far more depth and far more meaning to you personally, and I think to an audience, because I'm sure a lot of people who listen to our music are going through the same things and have the same emotions and, you know, especially with, you know, the loss of someone in the sense of, as you mentioned, tipping point and please be happy, the loss of Caroline, Um, you know, you're looking at at the TV and you see images in hospitals, you know, during the pandemic where people all across the world are losing people. So um, in that sense, it becomes um, more of a global thing than a personal thing.
2: Uh, it's interesting to view this record against your your first, the hurting. I see them as as linked in a certain way, almost as uh, you know, inverses or mirrored image, images of each other, or
3: something like that. At least I see them certain similarities. There there are definitely similarities. I think the difference is that the hurting was, you know, they're both a little angst ridden, but. It, it, on this album i think we're making sense of what's going on whereas on the i think we're more railing against what is going on we're angry at what's going on and um this one comes from a or at least leaves you with a, a far calmer feeling and a sense that, you know, we'll work it out at some point.
2: It's just interesting for me to think of how you started out uh, pre-Tears for Fears in the group you were in, and then even as teens playing, you know, Blue Oyster Cult and, and Led Zeppelin and, and original songs that were done in, in that similar style. Was there a light bulb moment for you in terms of realizing that y- you could that would lead you towards new kinds of songs that you could write that would help you uh, process emotions, I guess, in a way, and use music almost like as a as a tool as opposed to, you know, kind of these more, uh, I don't want to say, you know, rock-centric, but, you know, something with maybe a little more depth. Was there, were there people, were there either other artists or people like Arthur Yanoff that um, kind of led you into realizing that music could have this whole other layer?
4: It coincided the burden of electronic music. So all of a sudden, the duo became uh, a viable proposition because of the dream, because of the tape machine. And we quickly adopted this style and found we were very good at it. And what was great is we we could completely change the arrangement and express the emotions of, of for the first time, which we, we weren't really doing it before that, writing personal songs um, you know about what was going on inside us. but it was the combination of that with these crazy electronic arrangements and that made the whole thing something something very special. and it was our um, the emotional honesty uh, of early tears for fears. That kind of separated us from a lot of the what we would call um, utopian synthesizer groups, uh, like uh, Human League um, synthesizer groups, could, who would only play a keyboard with one finger. It was a kind of little bit punk. We were uh, we were actually guitarists, uh, and so we were kind of approaching it. I'd also been in the orchestra at school. I'd been in the choir, and we were approaching the arrangements in a completely different way.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think also that combined with, you know, at the time when we left graduate, obviously, you know, we, we had decided that we wanted, you know, songs to have more meaning. We wanted to talk about personal emotions, personal trauma. But also we, around that time, there were albums by Peter Gabriel's third album, I would cite, um, Talking Heads Remain in Light, David Bowie's Scary Monsters, that really took production to a different level. So not only were we deciding to write songs that had more, far more meaning and more and more personal meaning um, lyrically, but we were getting into recording. Uh, the band we were with before really had no interest in recording. I mean, they we were literally went in the studio and played live and recorded it, and that was that. Um, you might as well just stuck a mic up in the middle of room of the room. But we actually became interested in production and how these albums sounded so big. How was that possible? Um, so we actually got far more interested in studio work, which the the other people in in the band that we were in at the time had no interest in studio work.
2: I'm curious about your your home setups now. I mean, Roland in particular. I had fantasies of you having the Santa's grotto of you know vintage synths, DX sevens and Prophet fives and Lynn drums. And then I think I read an interview recently that uh, apparently this is not the case anymore. But what are they? What are your uh, your home setups like?
4: Yeah, I had this. I had this life laundry um, back in about two thousand and seven. Um, my when I um, went to LA to do Happy Ending, uh, my studio, which was full of electronics, was left um, to go sort of mouldy for about a couple of years. And I came back, and nothing really was working. So yes, at one point, I, I kind of virtually had the history of the electronic keyboard. And then when we, um, my wife and I, my late wife, decided that we were going to turn the recording studio into a guest accommodation, the builders came in and they literally stood me there. They pulled out keyboard by keyboard and said, do you want to keep it? Want to keep it? Uh, I said, no, I don't want to keep It doesn't work anymore. So I gave away or I sold at times, you know, all kinds of things from PPG Wave 2.2 to Profit 5s to Roland Jupiter 8s to to all kinds of rack mounts that I've used for decades. And now I've got them all all on a laptop. There's more power in a laptop nowadays than the entire SSL studio that I had with a computer that was taller than me.
2: (laughs) You know, not that I'm very tall, but it was still still sizable. I just have Indiana Jones' voice in my head saying it belongs in a museum, but I guess if I guess it makes sense too. I mean, that, do you? Um, is there anything that you miss about you know recording to tape and sort of the more hands-on analog recording
3: experience? Analog tends to be warmer, more than anything else. You know, I mean, this is why I think that for us it was. I mean, you know, the reason. I mean, we would love to have released this album last year, but the prime reason it wasn't was because we had to wait for vinyl. <laughs> you know, trying to get vinyl pressed is is pretty difficult these days, and and the vinyl issue of the of the record was very important to us. So um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a certain warmth to analog recordings that you miss, but there is a convenience to digital recording that makes life a little bit easier when you're in the studio. You haven't, you don't have to be so micro-focused on every tiny little mistake because you can easily correct them there. You know, you're not splicing tape anymore. <laughs>
2: you don't have the razor blade and, yeah.
3: Exactly. <laughs> I mean,
2: getting back to, to a little bit of what you were saying earlier about um, y- your lyrical themes. I mean, you were so instrumental in helping tape the conversation around mental health into popular music and, and normalizing it and paving the way for so many artists. I mean, one that comes to mind off the bat is the is the rapper Logic, who had a huge hit not too long ago uh, that was titled after the number of the uh, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and and made a, a huge difference. And I think they said that there was a a spike in calls to that hotline, some exponential number, as soon as that that song was released. Uh, and I think a lot of that you know, starting that conversation in popular music can be drawn right to you. I mean, how do you feel, uh, you know, the shift going from something like Suffer the Children to today and being being a part of that change in conversation and normalizing that? Well, I still think it's, a, it's still a difficult area. Mm. There's no doubt about it. It's still, I mean, it's
4: not as taboo. In fact, yesterday I did a, a whole hour podcast purely about mental health not about music. If you can give someone a sense that they're not alone in their state, in their desperation, then, you know, that's a good thing. It's the least you can do. Uh, music, in that sense, plays an enormous part. I mean, I remember some of the, you know, some of the letters we got from from people um, after the hurting and they were heartbreaking.
3: Yeah, I mean, we still get people stopping us now saying, you know, the, the hurting helped me through my college years, um, which is incredibly gratifying. Um, you know, it means that you've done something that had some depth and some use. But I think, you know, the word you use, which is, you know, something that's used a lot when you're bringing up children as well, I and mean, if you talk to psychologists, is normalizing it. That's the thing. You know, there, and we still do it as, as adults where we think, you know, something is completely abnormal when there are you know, thousands, if not millions of people going through the same thing. Um, but the first thing you're, you know, you do as a parent when your child has anxiety or any issues is to normalize, normalize those issues, to let them know it's not abnormal and that's their safety net, you know, is the that that knowing that what they're feeling is not abnormal. So, in, and it doesn't become then a panic and it doesn't get, get out of control. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, treating ourselves like we treat our children would become, would be useful at times.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful answer and a a wonderful note to end on. Kurt Rowland, thank you so much for your music and your time today. It's meant the world to me for so many years. It's such an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much.
3: You're very welcome.
2: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio, a production of iHeartRadio. For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
5: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh?
1: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, my God. <laughs> ah,
5: love that. A Redwood Forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, a girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent
3: California?
5: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit,